Okay, well, welcome to our second missile class. And like I said, it's going to be a little bit slow in the beginning, and then we're going to kind of pick up speed. And so what we're really going to look at this week is the ribbons and how to use your missile. Let me give you a little bit overview before we jump into the ribbons here is the reason I think it's going to be a little bit more thrilling as we go on is we're going to get into what's called typology. Typology is when you find characters of the Old Testament that line up with characters of the New Testament. And what we're going to see is how Christ, in his ultimate sacrifice on the cross, which is the same as the Mass, fulfills all of these people of the Old Testament. Melchizedek, Moses, Abraham. We'll even hear a lot of those names in the Roman canon. Even Melchizedek, who very few people know anything about, is mentioned in the Roman canon because all these men offered sacrifice. Um, and you'll notice in the Roman canon how many women are mentioned as far as 1st, 2nd, 3rd century Roman martyrs. And so um, the people who play into this are very, very important. And then you'll also notice a lot of the propers come for our ladies' feast days, like from Judith, where Judith, some of the women in the Old Testament, crush the heads of the enemies, right? I think Judith, Judith and one other person um, crushes the head of the captain of the army who comes against the Israelites. And so there's a lot of neat typology with Our Lady in all the Masses of Mary that we're going to look at in here. So later is going to be more exciting typology as we look what the Old Testament has to do with the New Testament and all of tradition. Um, but for today and the next couple of weeks, what I'd like to give you is just the structure of how to use your missile and how that lines up with all the way from the prayers of the foot of the altar to the propers to the Roman canon to the Leonine prayers after the Mass. And you don't have to follow along in every single word that's in your missile. As I said last week, I often suggest to newcomers to follow along in the missile for the mass of the catechumens and just try to contemplate for the mass of the faithful. But as I said, most people I've suggested that to still like to use this, and that's, that's totally fine. As you get better with this, you will be able to follow along not only the propers that I'm saying in Latin. A lot of people who've been coming to this mass, especially those who come to the daily mass for years, can even follow the Roman canon based on what they see my hands do. Like, for example, I mentioned the Hankigitur last week when my hands come together. The new mass calls it the epiclesis. But in the Hankigitur, when my hands come together over the oblata, the oblata is that which will be sacrificed. When you see my hands come down um, kind of like a triangle over the uh, chalice, you'll know, okay, he's saying Hankigitur, and then you'll find the English for that. And again, it's a little easier when you go to daily mass, but these classes will sort of catch you up for making a lot of sense of the daily masses. Okay, so last week I mentioned that someone had a really good question of just like, where these go? So why don't we just pick a imaginary but suggested way to put the ribbon? So I'm going to tell you which pages to put them in and then where to find them. So put your first, your purple one, between page... Um, Put it on page uh, 260. Put your purple on page 260. I'll wait till I see everybody has it. Oh, okay, sorry. So just put it on today's. Yeah, thank okay. So that's fine if you have a different one. Just put it on today's sixth Sunday after Epiphany. Great. Thanks for telling me that. I'll just make it clear which one. If you have the Angelus Press, put it on 260, which for everyone else is going to be the same day, which is sixth Sunday after Epiphany. 
Yes, Beth. My purple ribbon was in the stations and the white was in the <coughs> Sunday. Oh, it's in the ordinary? Do you want to keep it that way or do you want to, you want to keep it that way? Okay, he's got his way. That's, that's like how I grew up. I, I thought I perfectly had like the nativity scene set up and I told my brother and says, I like explained to them why the donkey had to be there. And I was such a, such a control freak. <laughs> Tried to lose some of it, but some of the OCD is going to, like I said last week, kind of help you in knowing where to go. <laughs> okay, I'll talk louder. Okay, 260, purple. Go to the ordinary, the mass of the catechumens, for, that's page 838 for your white. Or if you have a different one, just your next ribbon. It doesn't really matter. So put a ribbon at the ordinary, which is Psalm 42. That would basically the sign of the cross, like right when you start mass. This is the, start, the stuff that never changes in any mass. Actually, that's not even true because Psalm 42 does not said in the, in the mass of the dead. But the sign of the cross is always set. So put... Put one ribbon in the ordinary, which is the mass of the catechumens, or the ordinary of the mass, or the preparatory prayers at the foot of the altar. <coughs> I'm suggesting if you have the um, Angelus Press, the white ribbon, but you don't, you know, doesn't, you don't have to. Does anybody, I have two. Does anyone not, not if you already have five at home, but is there anybody who doesn't have one? I saw people squirreling away these. Uh, does anybody, does anyone not, like I see you're taking notes. Do you want one? Oh, yeah, we're just sharing. You're just sharing? Okay. Okay, okay. (laughs) It's good to bring them to this. Uh, Okay, so a white one at the Mass of the Catechumens. Let's put a, um, you'll see why. I want you to put one on St. Andrew, page 1042. I would suggest the green. 1042 is St. Andrew, and you're going to see why. It's November 30th. And normally you're not going to have two ribbons this close to each other, but just put one a couple pages later on St. Francis Xavier. Put a red one on page 1049 for St. Francis Xavier. Or just a ribbon on St. Francis Xavier. It doesn't matter if it's not the same press or publication. Nancy, you, you can come up here if you want. We got a spot. You want to come? Okay. Okay. And then put one on All Souls Day, fourteen eighty five. I would suggest the black, of course, but whatever you want. I'd suggest the black for fourteen eighty five for a mass for the dead. So I'll just go through them one more time. I got one on the sixth Sunday after Epiphany resumed. I put the purple on 260. I got one on the ordinary of the Mass. That's the preparatory prayers at the foot of the altar in Nomine Patris Filii Spiritus Santi. Put the white there, page 838, if you got the Angelus. I put one on a green one on St. Andrew, which is November 30th. 
put one on December 3rd, I put the red. And then I put one on all souls. So let's imagine that this is broken up into maybe sevenths, okay? I'm going to give you sort of the setup for how this is in any missile that goes back hundreds of years. Basically, the first and the second seventh of this is the Sundays of the year. The first and the second seventh of your missile is the Sundays of the year. Yes, Ben? Where did you want the black one? Oh, I put it in the back at the, do you have the Angelus Press one? Put it at 1485. It's a mass of the dead. Actually, I take that back. Usually the first seventh of the modern productions is devotionals. They're really good devotionals. Whether you have the Baronius Press or the Angelus Press, usually the first seventh of it is devotionals. The second seventh is the propers for Sunday. If you're at a Sunday Mass, this is the very first place you want to look. You should be able to, even if you lost your Angelus Press and moved to California and bought a totally different production like, say, the Baronius Press, you should remember this. Okay, I'm going to Sunday Mass in, say, Sacramento. I'm going to go to Latin Mass. I buy a new breviary or missile. I've never seen it. You should think, okay, first seventh of this is going to be devotionals. The second seventh is the Sundays of the year where you're going to follow along in the readings. And that's exactly what you're going to find. That's why I have, um, actually, I'd probably switch it, but it's, you could also put the green there if you want to like really kind of follow it. But it, the purple works great for that, especially in Advent and Lent. But once you know in your mind it's the first seventh or second seventh of your book, it doesn't really matter what color you have. As long as we're on this topic, let's see if anybody can find the propers for next week. Because are they going to be anywhere near where we have them right now? No, they're not going to be anywhere near. Why not? Who said no? Why not? Because I think it's the 23rd Sunday, 24th Sunday of after Pentecost. Yes. So if you see the, the sermon I put up today, I'm going to call it Superfuit Sunday. Superfuit means remaining or surviving. This is the remaining Sunday from what would have been a Sunday after Epiphany, but because we started Lent early... That was squashed, and the church puts it at the end of the year so we get all the readings involved, if that makes sense. So this, what we just covered today, Superfuit Sunday, means it was remaining or surviving from earlier, and we put it today. But the church decided always the last Sunday of the year is always the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. So if we had a really early Lent, like next year, we're going to have a few more put in. They put them backwards. So like last week... In, but in 2018, so imagine 51 weeks from now, basically, I think it'll be the fifth resumed Sunday after Epiphany. They, they sandwich them in based on what was left over or surviving from earlier in the year. That's all super complex. Don't worry about it. The, the point is that the year always ends with the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. And one thing I like about the new calendar more than the old calendar is, I mean, how many of you have heard a sermon in the Novus Ordo start with, there's nothing ordinary with ordinary time. We've all heard that, and we're like, oh, I'm leaving. Uh, it's like, how many times are you going to tell me there's nothing ordinary about ordinary time? But what's so cool about this calendar is there's, there is no what I call an orphan Sunday. There is no orphan day. Every day is in reference to something. 
And in the old calendar, it's actually all in reference to Pentecost. Isn't that funny? They said, oh, Catholics didn't know the Holy Spirit before Vatican II. Well, it's kind of funny that every single Sunday is in reference to Pentecost in, in the old Mass. So it's either in reference to Advent or Christmas uh, or what's coming to be Holy Week, Lent, and Easter. That's sort of, you're looking forward and they count backwards for it. And then after Pentecost, it's all counted after Pentecost. So there's no such thing as an orphan Sunday. Every Sunday is either in reference to Advent slash Christmas or Passion Week or Pentecost. Everything's in reference to that or the daily ones are in reference to a saint. Okay, so can somebody please find next week's and tell me where that is? 814, okay. So let's switch, let's switch our purple then to, uh, to 814 and get it ready for next week. Got it right. I think it reverts back to eight ten though, because it's twenty third Sunday after Pentecost. Is that right? No, I think she got it right. I think it's I think it's uh, eight fourteen. Last Sunday. Yeah. Oh, and that's neat. You got a little chart there. If you look in the if you have the Angelus Press, it's really neat. It shows you um, if the number of Sundays after Pentecost is, and that means and see. Because Pentecost is based on Lent, and Lent is based on the moon, the amazing thing is how much of this Mass is actually, and the new calendar follows this too, how much of Catholicism and Judaism is based on creation, right? So all of this is based on the sun and the moon without worshiping them like pagans do, but it's still based on it. So basically what it's saying is um, if you have, now so why would one, look, we have, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. What that means is we could have 24 Sundays after Pentecost before Advent. We could have 25 Sundays of Pentecost before Advent. We could have 26 Sundays of Pentecost before Advent. What does all that depend on? When Easter Yeah, just when Easter is. That's all. just matters when Easter is. But it's rewound. Before Easter, it's always... When do we start the old calendar in sort of amping up for Easter? What day is that? Anybody know? Well, what's it called in the new calendar? When we start getting ready for Lent, well, no, when does Lent start in the new calendar and the old calendar? Ash Wednesday. But the ancient East and the ancient West both said, you know what, we all have these addictions that we kind of have to taper down before we give it all up. I mean, the old calendar and the Russian Orthodox calendar really understands human nature. How many times have you been like, I'm giving up coffee on Ash Wednesday, and then after 48 hours of a massive headache, you're like, okay, maybe not coffee. Right? <laughs> so, like, it really understands you have to taper these things down. And, and so, um, does anybody know what our first, like, hey, start getting ready for, for um, Lent day is? Does anybody know what that is? You got it, yeah. Yeah, the very first is Septuagesima Sunday, which means we're 70 days from Easter. Okay, 70 days from Easter. And because Lent is so early this year, guess what? Septuagesima Sunday falls on in January. Isn't that amazing? So that means you get like you got to start giving things up in January if you're going to take the old calendar seriously, right? In fact, the Orthodox, they actually give you the suggestion what to parse down. Right around Septuagesima, well, okay, after Septuagesima Sunday, the next week is called Sexagesima, which means 60. Okay, everybody knows 70 minus 7 is not 60. They're all estimates. They're all, it's all estimates to the point of Easter. So Septuagesima, that might be the one exact one. 
Septuagesima Sunday means we're 70 days from Easter. The next week is Sexagesima. That just means 60. We're about 60 days from Easter. Next one is Quinquagesima. That's Latin for 50. We're about 50 days from Easter. Then we have, guess what? What is Lent known as? Quadragesima, 40 days, the 40 great fast. So then, then we're finally in the middle of Lent because Lent is 40 days. That's how long Moses spent fasting. That's how long Jesus spent fasting. But the idea is to start giving some things up. So the Eastern Orthodox and Byzantine Catholics, does everybody know there's actually 24 churches in the Catholic Church and we Latins are just one of them? There's actually 23 churches, which includes like Indian Cyril Malabar, the Maronite Catholics in Lebanon, uh, Greek Catholics, basically any Orthodox church that you have, we have a mirror church in the, in the Catholic Church that follows their own Eastern Code of Canon Law, but remains faithful to recognize the primacy of place in Rome, which some Orthodox do too, but they're actually Catholics with their own Code of Canon Law. So like their priests can be married, but they're still Catholic. So you're going to meet, like my sister's raising her family Byzantine Catholic. I should say my sister and her husband are raising their family Byzantine Catholic and they found he was in there first. And so my niece is actually being baptized today in the Byzantine, and I think she receives her first communion today, even though she's only been born a week, because that's what the Byzantines do. Okay. They call, I think it's either Septuagesima or Sextuagesima Sunday, Meat Fair Sunday. You eat all this meat, and then you're done for about 70 days. You're supposed to give up meat at Sextuagesima or Septuagesima Sunday. They call it Meat Fair Sunday. Then the next week, they call it Cheese Fair Sunday. Eat all the cheese you want because you don't get any more dairy till Easter. Very, very hard fast. Very hard fast. Um, it's more of a monk one that you try to... And then, and then once Easter starts, they don't even get oil. I mean, you're just living on like apples and peanut butter and stuff. <laughs> so it's a, it's a hard fast that they take seriously. And, 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 and see, these old calendars were so smart according to human nature <laughs> to gear us up to kind of understand we have to taper things down. So amazingly, that starts. Okay. But anyway, back to this. If the number of Sundays after Pentecost is, we'll say, 26, then you, you just look at your calendar and see, okay, because of where Lent and Easter fell this year, and just look at the graph, the column, then you follow the column down, that means that on the 24th is the fifth Sunday after, Epi- fifth Sunday after Epiphany. Um, so it, it, it fills it in, but always the last Sunday after Pentecost is the 24th Sunday after Pentecost, and it, it just calls it Last Sunday After Pentecost, page 814. Does anybody know, without looking ahead, what those readings are usually about last Sunday of the year? the new year. Well, next week I'll start the new year. In two weeks from today we'll have the new year. But what, what about our faith is involved in, in the 24th Sunday after Pentecost? Usually the end of the world, actually. And, yeah, it is. And then, and then also Advent. So the two things to look for in Advent is not only looking forward to Christ coming at Christmas, but actually you're going to notice a lot of Christ's second coming about the end of the world. In fact, the Novus Ordo readings in Advent line up, I think, almost perfectly, even on the daily Masses to the traditional Latin Mass. So they didn't really touch those too much. So if you have a Magnificat, you can kind of line them up with, with this on the, on the new one. But you're going to notice that there's a lot. Um, since, if any of you subscribe to Census Fidelum, he's going to put up uh, the one I gave last year. And I talk about the seven things that have to come at the end of the world. And this isn't like private revelation. Public revelation, what Scripture says, the seven final things that we will see at the end of the world. 
And uh, I particularly like that sermon because I put a lot of like research into see not what's private revelation, but what's publicly taught. So I'm hoping he puts that up next week, and then you'll get a different sermon. But make sure to look at that um, in there. Yes? What was that? Oh, so there's a YouTube channel. It's, it's actually a YouTube channel called Census, S-E-N-S-U-S. Fidelium, F-I-D-E-L-I-U-M. And there's about five traditional priests whose sermons are put up in there. They have about 50,000 subscribers on it. The first ones were Father Wolf and Father Rippard. I think they have the most listens. But Father Wolf, still Fraternity St. Peter, Father Rippard started an order of exorcists. And uh, they're very, very Thomistic in their teaching. And a lot of people like to tune in and, and listen. Okay. Okay, so you guys should be ready for next week, right? Um, wait, why does that say as on the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost? That's weird. Why does it say 23? Yeah, it says, as on the 23rd Sunday, except. Oh, okay, that's one of those ones where it's gonna, you're going to follow. Okay, but most of those propers are still different, so I don't know why it says that. That's why I said 8 to 10, because I was like, yeah, that, that's weird. it seems like all of it's in there. So basically, everybody, these are the two pages you're going to need next week. 8.14 and 8.38. If you want to start following along, because we're going to kind of like slowly get you ready for this. The only two pages you really need to flip back and forth between next week at Sunday Mass is the last Sunday after Pentecost, whatever production you have. If you have the Angelus Press, it's 814. And just 20 pages later, 838, maybe more. 838 is the ordinary of the Mass. So let's just go through that really quick. Where, so we have the sign of the cross, the Eudicame Domine, that's the prayers at the foot of the altar. Then I say the confidior. I know I'm going through this fast. Go up to page 844. This is, the, this is where I'm going up to the altar. I'm saying these prayers. And you should know what I'm praying as I, as I walk. You might see me walking and whispering, and I actually have these memorized. Take away from us our iniquities. We beseech thee, O Lord, that we may be worthy to enter with pure minds into the Holy of Holies through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then as I bow down before the relics, I, we, I say, We beseech thee, O Lord, by the merits of thy saints, whose relics are here and of all the saints, that thou wouldst vouchsafe to forgive me all my sins. I try to literally think of the relics that are there to tell these saints, I'm nothing like you, and I need your help. And once again, when does this go? Does this go back to the Middle Ages? No, this goes back to the very early church. I mean, this is why Mass was on the bones of the early Roman martyrs in the catacombs. Mass, during Holy Mass, they would be praying in the very early church for these martyrs to be interceding for these priests. This is super old stuff. This isn't Middle Ages. This is very early church, you know? So I go up there, and I'm literally thinking of these martyrs interceding, and then I kiss where they're placed, because, you know, all altar stones have to have the body part of one of the saints. That's what a relic is. A first-class relic is a body part of the saint. So when I say tuorum, I'm telling God, your saints. Isn't that neat? They're not my saints. They're, they're actually God's saints. As I say the word tuorum, which means yours, I kiss the altar. Now, here's something really neat. Does anybody know the interior, the three stages of the interior life of the Catholic Church or the, of the soul? The, the, the progression towards holiness. I mean, most Catholics now don't even know what mortal sin is, so they can't be really in sanctifying grace. But once you're in sanctifying grace, if you were to, say, become a Carmelite and really get intense into, like, the fasting and the mental prayer and everything else like that, there's three stages of the interior life that are called the purgative way and the illuminative way 
and the unitive way. Those are the three stages of how close you are to God if you're a Catholic in sanctifying grace. Probably everyone in here, including myself, is in the purgative way of prayer. That means where we're learning to detach from our own will and love God. The illumination. Could you repeat, could you repeat those yes, yes, the three stages of the interior life are the purgative way. You can guess what that means, the purgation. You're being purged of what you love, purged of your sins, basically. It's basically being purged of your venial sins because you can't enter the purgative way in mortal sin. You just can't. These are all presupposing the bare minimum of sanctifying grace. And that's sad. We Catholics flip-flop between grace and sin when like God expects us to move rapidly from these three stages of life. So the first is a purgative way of prayer. That means you're learning to detach from venial sin. The second is the illuminative way of prayer, where you're increasing in the gifts of the Holy Ghost, especially wisdom, understanding, and counsel. Understa- the gift of the Holy Spirit's gift of understanding is to know God through the intellect, but not through information, but he's actually illuminating you. In fact, the early church, to get baptized, you had to fast for 40 days, and that's one reason they called baptism the, the sacrament of illumination. I know that might sound like Eastern religions to you, but the early Christians called sacrament of baptism the sacrament of illumination, because after fasting for 40 days, when the water was poured over your head, you were infused with the mysteries of the faith. You still had to learn, you still had to study, but you were infused with the gifts, and so you had an experience um, of God by tasting him in the intellect, which is different from information. And then wisdom is the highest gift of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, which is to know God through love. That's to know God through love, and that's actually the highest gift of that. Okay, Ben. I don't have one. Okay. So, um, and then the third level is the unitive stage of prayer. I probably know... Maybe, maybe I know someone in this stage of prayer. I don't know. It's very, very rare. The unitive stage of prayer is where you're kind of a dead saint walking the earth. Like, your soul's in heaven. No, not gross. It's like He goes, ew. No, like, <laughs> your soul's basically in heaven and your body's on earth. What's that? You just haven't physically died yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and usually your body's very, very mortified, but it's an easy cross to carry because you're so united with God. The Holy Spirit is so powerful in you that even if you fast all day, it doesn't even hurt that much. It's not that God dulls your pain nerves. It's that love is overflowing in you, and it's easy. Like St. Augustine said, love makes all heavy and burdensome things nearly nothing. So so what figure would be an example from history of a unitive? Almost all the saints, I mean, almost all the saints um, died in the unitive stage of prayer. Probably the only exceptions would be certain martyrs. But... I would even imagine a lot of the early Christians couldn't have endured like three and four days of torture if they weren't already in the unitive stage of prayer, which is why their fasting was so important. They were, they were training for the final combat of victory, which was their torture and martyrdom. So they saw fasting as their training for that. You know what I mean? Um, probably some saints, some, some martyrs, like I mentioned in my sermon, just if you take a bullet in the head in front of an abortion clinic, That'd be nice. No purgatory time, and I'm not in the unitive stage of prayer. Just <laughs> quick, quick, you know, trip to heaven. Um, but you know, 
a couple saints even went beyond that to what's called the marital union, like Teresa of Avila. She went even a step beyond the um, unitive stage of prayer to what's called the marital union, where her soul was the full bride of Christ. Isn't that unbelievable? She was the bride of Christ before she died. Just amazing. Yes, Damon. Would Saint Bridget be there also, or no? Oh, she'd certainly be in the unitive stage of prayer. But not, yeah, I mean, she, she may have. Amazing. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, um, and so St. John of the Cross talks a lot about these things. So to move from the purgative way of prayer to the illuminative way of prayer, you have to go, with, go through what's called the dark night of the senses. The dark night of the senses is when you really detach from what your appetite's like. Not just food. It doesn't mean you have to, to fast all day, but it's, it's also your will. So it's like everything that you're attached to. It doesn't mean sort of just being a lazy waif that just floats through life, and I don't care what happens, but it's, it, it, it's an active decision of love. So the, the dark night of the senses, and it's possible for lay people too. Food does have a, a big part to do with it. It doesn't mean eating nothing, but it means detaching from what holds you back. You know, And when you go through the dark night of the senses from the purgative way of prayer to the illuminative, well, then you're in the illuminative. And then you're really like, then it's like a takeoff for, for a 747. Now you're gaining uh, extreme altitude every three seconds you're really, really flying closer to God in the illuminative way of prayer. To use this analogy, unitive way of prayer is 38,000 feet. That's when you're at cruising altitude. Um, but to get there, you have to go through what's called the dark night of the soul. Most of the time in history, this is only something that nuns and monks who've been like really living intense vigils and fastings and things get to, but some lay people can get there through charity, through really living their vocation in charity. And to get through the dark night of the soul, it's harder than the dark night of the senses because dark night of the senses detaches our body from what it wants. The dark night of the soul detaches our soul from what it wants. You get that? It's all the, like, Teresa of Avila and the Carmelites explain that ecstasies and raptures, things that we associate with the saints, those are actually, like, when people are praying and they levitate and they go into, like, you know, um, ecstasy, like you could put pins in their feet and they don't move and stuff. That's actually all stuff at the end of the illuminative way of prayer. It's not even unitive stage stuff. This is at the end of that. When you're at the end of that intensity of coming to God, God takes all those joys and consolations away. And then it's like, are you still going to love me? Without the ecstasies, the joys, the consolations, are you still going to love me? And that's why St. John of the Cross wrote so much about this, is because his whole thing was he saw so many monks and nuns turn around because all of a sudden they thought, God doesn't love me. I don't have these good feelings anymore. He must not love me. And he's like, just keep going. Now, there are so many Catholics who think their depression equals dark night of the soul. If you're depressed, you are not in the dark night of the soul. <laughs> it's not the same thing. You know, someone will say, oh, I think I'm in the dark night of the soul because like, I always hear young adults say that. I have... I can't, find a, I can't find a boyfriend, and I'm already 22, and I, I think I'm in the dark night of the soul. And it's like, you're not. You're just, you just want a boyfriend. And that's okay. That, that's okay. It's good to get married, you know. But being sad about not having a lot of good Catholic men around does not equal the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is something God creates in the person leaving the illuminative stage of prayer to get to the unitive stage of prayer. It's a gift of God of total darkness. In fact, I know some traditionalists don't like Mother Teresa because she said a few things that smacked of religious indifferentism. But I mean a couple saints, even you know, long before Vatican II had a couple mistakes. So I think she's great. And she, she, uh, she went through 60 years of it, actually. 
she had absolutely, it was total darkness for her for 60 years, the dark night of the soul. Um, and God did that as an offering so she could offer that for all the atheists in the world who felt that God didn't love them. Like my friend was driving around the Beltway in D.C. once, and do you guys remember when her book came out, Come Be My Light? Come Be My Light was her, that was her book of her journal that they published about how she didn't feel heaven was open to her, she didn't experience God's love, and she just did it anyway. Like she just did all of her love for them anyway, and for all the poor people, and still made her two holy hours a day and everything. And when that came out, a lot of the media said, aha, we knew Mother Teresa never had faith. We knew that it was all social justice. She was, doing, she was serving the poor for the poor. And so one of these people, she ran an NPR uh, radio show as sort of a book report thing, and so she read a couple of these things mocking it. She mocked the back of it, and she goes, um, as you can see, or no, she read the back of her book, which said, I will use my darkness to be a saint of darkness for those who walk in darkness that they might find the light, something like that, that she would offer up all of her experience of God not loving her for all the people in the world who didn't feel this. And so... This NPR, this is after Mother Teresa died, she started reading some of these quotes about how heaven felt closed to her. She had no effective, effective, not real love, but no affective love of God um, and still chose to love him anyway and still chose to make these holy hours and still chose to love him in the Eucharist and still chose to love Christ in the poor. Well, as this NPR, um, what do you call a radio host? The announcer. announcer. was more than an announcer. I guess it was a host finished maybe 15 minutes of mocking these quotes from her, her journal, Come Be My Light, she opened up the phone lines for other people to start calling in and mocking. And the first person calls in and says, you know, I was going to commit suicide tonight, but I realized if things felt that dark to Mother Teresa and she still loved God, I think I can give it another shot. Hangs up. Next person calls, I'm homosexual. I always thought God hated me, but I guess if I feel this way and she still chose to love God and she felt that way, I can try to love God. Per- hangs up. Next person, I was so depressed. I always thought that, that heaven was close to me because God hated me. But I guess if Mother Teresa didn't think God hated her, maybe I can give God a shot. Hangs up. After 45 minutes of these people calling, the, uh, the NPR host goes, and there you have it, the saint of darkness leading people to light and ends the show. Oh, nice. Amazing. So she offered up that, that whole period for those who live in darkness. Okay, what does this have to do with the Mass? This is so cool. The first part of the Mass is reflective of the purgative way of the soul. Notice that all the prayers at the front of the altar are asking to purge myself from sin. Isn't this awesome? You can see where this is going. All the first third of this Mass is asking, and that's why you should read along here, because when I'm praying these prayers, take away from us our iniquities. Notice it's in the plural. We beseech thee, O Lord, that we may be worthy to enter with pure minds into the Holy of Holies through Christ our Lord. Amen. We beseech thee, O Lord, by the merits of thy saints, whose relics are here, and of all thy saints. That's when I kiss the altar, that thou would vouchsafe to forgive me all my sins. This is where we're asking for forgiveness of venial sins. If you're in mortal sin, you've got to go to confession before Holy Communion, but you can still attend Mass. That's one of the greatest myths in the American Catholic Church nowadays. I don't see it in traditional circles as much as Novus Order circles. They think... What's the point in going to Mass if I'm in mortal sin and I can't receive Holy Communion? It's like, don't add another mortal sin by missing Mass. And, and also, St. Thomas Aquinas says, attending Mass in mortal sin gives you the grace to come out of mortal sin. He doesn't mean that attending Mass without confession gives you the grace to come out of it. He means that attending Mass in mortal sin 
if you refrain from Holy Communion, because you're at the sacrifice of Calvary, it's so powerful, it will give you the grace to make a good confession. Does that make sense? That's why, when, if you know friends of yours who are like, I'm in, uh, you know, so let's say there's a couple living together who's not married, and they say, I'm not going to go to Mass. You say, you know what? Go to Mass. Don't receive Holy Communion, because the graces will still work on them, right? It's, it's important to instruct them, don't go to Holy Communion. But just say, don't stop going to Mass. Keep going to Mass and sin. Don't receive Holy Communion. Because in the Middle Ages, they called, they, they called it the gaze that saves, by just looking at the lifting of the Holy Sacrifice of God. So, so realize it's good to go to Mass if you're in mortal. There's still tons of graces to go to Mass in mortal sin. But don't receive Holy Communion because it says in 1 Corinthians 11, you eat and drink katesis in Greek, which literally means, usually translated judgment, but also means condemnation. You eat and drink your own condemnation. Pretty serious. So, you know, not to make everybody scrupulous, um, if you're not sure, go to Holy Communion. If you're sure that it's mortal sin, go to confession. But I always say, hey, why not just be safe and get all the grace and go to confession every week. That's the best way. That's why I'm getting there at 7 a.m. or 7.08 today. Okay, so then the next, the next part of the Mass, the illuminative. Yes, ma'am. Can I ask, do you know who the relics are in our... No, I need to find out. And I also need to put... I'm glad you mentioned that. Because I need to write to Don and make sure that... In the, in the old... or Sorry, in the Misa Cantata, I actually incense four relics two times, times two times. So that's 16 swings of incense in the Misa Cantata. And I need to make sure they're up there. So I'm, I'm going to write that down um, right now. I need to find out who's in there too. I would say the illuminative stage of prayer is when you really follow your missal and actually try to imbibe these readings and try to do Lexio Divina and sort of chew on them like a cow chews on the cud to really like be meditating in the middle of us because the illuminative stage of prayer is just what it says. You're being illuminated by the holy faith. We've all heard these stories of like one page of the catechism just kind of wafting into a lone Chinese town and all of the town becoming Christian because of one page of the catechism. I mean, a little bit of the truth can convert a lot of people. Like I said in the sermon today, one person can convert a lot. Why do you think the last part of Mass is called is analogous to the unitive stage of prayer? What do you think? What are you uniting with? Christ, Christ in the Eucharist, right? You're uniting with Christ in the Eucharist. So when you receive Holy Communion, it's not saying you have to be in the unitive stage of prayer to receive Holy Communion, but it is saying it's a pretty serious thing that your soul should kind of be catching up to this. If you're going to be receiving Holy Communion, your soul should kind of be in that direction. doesn't mean you have to be in the unitive stage of prayer. It doesn't even mean you have to be in the illuminative stage of prayer. As long as you're in the purgative stage of prayer, in other words, as long as you're in sanctifying grace, you can receive Holy Communion. But it should sort of spur you on to say, wow, if by the time I'm receiving Holy Communion, this is analogous to the unitive stage of prayer. Again, it's not saying you have to be in the unitive stage of prayer. But if you're uniting yourself with Christ physically, huh, maybe you should be united with him spiritually to the utmost degree, right? So again, this isn't about mind-willing ourselves in or fasting ourselves to death or whatever, but this, is, this, this all comes through abandonment to small graces. And this is what Mother Teresa figured out. This is what St. Therese figured out. It's abandonment to small graces. In fact, Mother Teresa took that promise under mortal sin. She would never deny anything that she felt God was telling her to do or to give up. I wouldn't suggest that but it's an amazing vow that she took, and that's why she reached the stage of prayer. She was probably in the unitive stage of prayer, but God made her feel like she was in the dark night of the soul for 60 years. Okay. Um, 
so as we go through this, then we have the Curie LAs, and I would say we're still in the purgative stage of prayer. Let's go to the next page. Um, the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, that's page 848. Okay, 850, where it says the Collex, or even if you're not in the um, Angelus Press one, if you find the Collex where the priest says Oremus, that's the first time you're going to divert from the skeleton or the ordinary of the Mass to go to the proper, which, like I said last week, was like the flesh that's put onto the Mass. So, for next week, can anyone tell me what that first collect is going to be? Why don't you read it in English instead of Latin? 814. Can you read that then? Stura? Yeah. Stura would beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of the faithful to seek more earnestly this fruit of the divine work that they may receive more abundant healing gifts Tender mercy through our Lord Jesus Great. So, for the last Sunday after Pentecost, the collect is, Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful to seek more earnestly this fruit of the divine work, that they may receive more abundantly healing gifts from thy tender mercy through Christ the Lord. One of the really neat things that you're going to see is there is a lineup for all of the collects and the epistles and the gospel. You're actually going to see a theme to every single Mass in this. Okay? Let's pretend like it's December 3rd. How, what's going to be different up to this point for the feast of my favorite saint, St. Saint Francis Xavier? What's going to be different up to this point? Are, is the, well, let's just go through it. Is the sign of the cross the same as a Sunday Mass? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about the prison for the altar? Mm-hmm. How about um, the uh, prayers to the relics? Same as, okay. Uh, Kyrie? Yes. Is there a Gloria? No. Why not? I think there, you know, I think there, I think that's, I think they're only suppressed in the Novus Ordo calendar. I think we might keep the Gloria and on the second class feast of the week, but suppress the Gloria on the Advent Sundays. So I think we will have a Gloria on the feast of. You're thinking along the right lines that it's a penitential season, but I still think second class feasts have it, even in um, penitential seasons, at least, I'll check, I don't know. Okay, what's the first thing that's different, though, for St. Francis Xavier? Can anyone read me the collect that we're going to pray uh, at that point, and what, pa- and what page is it on? So the collect, actually, tell me what page it is first. 1050. She's right, yeah, 1050, because we already, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm, I messed up, I'm sorry, the intro it for St. Francis Xavier, that was a little bit earlier. But the, so I, I, was, I messed up. That is the first thing that's proper to that Mass. Okay, but let's look at 1050. What's the collect that, we're gonna, that I'm going to actually pray to God in on? I'm not praying it to Francis Xavier. This, it's directed to God through Francis Xavier or while thinking of Francis Xavier. But the collect is always to God, not to a saint. So can someone read that out loud? Oh God, who by the preaching and miracles of blessed Francis... Waste pleased to join to thy church the nations of the Indies, mercifully grant that we who venerate his glorious merits may likewise follow the example of his virtues. So you'll always see something of the saint that refers to his life. O God, who by the preaching and miracles of blessed Francis, wast is just old English for was, was pleased to join thy church the nations of the Indies, mercifully grant that we who venerate his glorious merits may likewise follow the example of his virtues. And usually you'll see something on the date for his life. Like, I'm pretty sure he died December 3rd. So that's why 
Usually it's the day of his death that we celebrate because the early church called the day of the martyrs their birth date because they're born into eternal life. So we're celebrating their birthday into eternal life usually, and if they couldn't fit it in there, there's usually a day or two afterwards. Um, okay, so I, sorry, I forgot to put the intro in. Let's go back then, and we won't go back to the intro, but let's just go to the next part. What's after, uh, what's after the um, collect or the oremus? Does anybody know what follows that? Epistle. The epistle, great. And where is the epistle going to come from for the Mass of St. Francis Xavier? Very good. Did you see that? This is why it can get a little complex. So that's why I had you put another ribbon on just a few pages prior. Now, when it's usually a few pages prior, I will usually say just don't put a ribbon and just look at it and just go back. But sometimes you'll have to flip back 400 pages, and it's good to have one before Mass starts. So do you see that? It's to save space because, because there's so many repeats, this book would be twice, even though it's very tedious to have all this flip in between pages, this book would be twice as big if they didn't repeat these for you. So it's to your advantage. Okay, so that's exactly right. Where am I reading the epistle? To the right or to the left? <coughs> yep. Right. Right, and that's why it's called the epistle side. Can anyone read, or let's just look together at the epistle. Yes? I never have, when, I, when I was reading this, it says it's, it's God's left. Though. Well, yeah, because, I mean, Christ and the Blessed Sacrament, but, we're, but you and me are facing the same way, so... There's actually a really neat thing. So think of the setup of Italy. So imagine a priest in Rome praying ad orientum, the only exception to that is St. Peter's, even before Vatican II. But any priest in Rome in the early church is going to try to face east. Same with in Turkey in the early church, they're facing east. So imagine the traditional Latin mass in the very earliest centuries, the priest is facing east, just, any, just picture the whole boot of Italy. He's facing east. What is to his south? Sicily, what's even farther south? Africa, Africa, go a little east of there. The beginning, how about Israel? Israel, right? So, So, the right side of the altar represents the Jews. This is why we light, the boy, what side candle do you always light first, Ben? The epistle. The epistle side, because the light of Christ came to the Jews first. Isn't that neat? So, again, picture any priest in Rome or Naples, whatever, he's facing east, even the, the candle to the right has to be lit because that's toward Israel. Israel is in that direction, right? Okay, that side represents the Jews because the light of Christ came first to the Jews. Now, when I read the, uh, the gospel, what side do I go, right or left? Left. Left. Now, am I flush square with the altar like I was? No, you're diagonal. Diagonal. Now, think early Italy, third century maybe. Who am I preaching to? Yeah. The barbarian. The barbarian hordes. Did you hear that? The German barbarian hordes. I'm preaching the gospel to these German barbarian hordes. If you want to know what they look like, watch the movie Gladiator, right? Because the, the Romans are trying to conquer them, and they're all in their giant fur you know, jackets and everything, and, and that's where they're moving into. So you're preaching the gospel as an Italian, a Roman-Italian Catholic priest into these Roman hordes of barbarians in the north. Uh, and then the neat thing is what we're going to see is we end the Mass back on the Epistle side because Christ we, it's taught in our faith that all 
the Jews will return to Catholicism before Christ returns. Isn't that neat? So there's, there's an apocalyptic understanding of this Mass in everything. Okay, so the epistle, let's see what page the epistle was on there. You said it was page, it's for St. Andrew, 1042. Let's see if we can figure out why. Um, oh, that makes total sense. Why the church would pick Romans 10. Because it says here, How shall they believe him who they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Is Paul talking about Gentiles or Jews here? Is Paul talking about Gentiles or Jews? Gentiles, Gentiles very good. And who did, who did Francis Xavier go to? Gentiles. That's why it's picking Romans 10. It's because Francis Xavier went to the Gentiles, and Paul's talking about the Gentiles, that how can someone accept Christ if they've never even heard of Christ? That's where he went there. Okay, then uh, where is the gradual and the alleluia done? The right side or the left side? Epistle side or the gospel side? Epistle side, good. So you're going to see me, I hold the book like this, I say the, the gradual and the alleluia, those are always going to be the same for a holy man, and they're going to be different for a holy woman, they're going to be different for a pope, they're going to be different for a papal martyr, but you're going to notice, hey, I've seen this before, and then, oh yeah, this pope was a martyr, and this pope was a martyr, and that was the same. So these are always going to be the same based on the categorization of the saint. Okay, then I go over to the left. If you want, you can follow, so even though it doesn't tell you the prayers between the alleluia and the gospel there, this is where you'll eventually be informed enough to say, oh, I want to follow along to see what he's praying. And that's where I described that prayer last week about the burning coal on my tongue. That's on page 852. So maybe put your white ribbon at 854 at the gospel. It tells you what the gospel is under St. Francis Xavier. It's gospel of Mark 16. Let's hear what it has to say. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them, and they shall lay their hands upon the sick and they shall recover. Why do you think it's about Francis Xavier? Because he did all of those things. Isn't that amazing? He did all those. He raised the dead, hands on the sick, they thought he'd die from poison and stuff. He lived this, so they always coordinate it to this person's life. He that is believed, go, well, and even the first part is even better. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that is believed and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. I mean, Francis Xavier really believed any person he didn't baptize or the next Jesuits after him didn't baptize were going to go to hell. I mean, we can talk about the exceptions to that. Because even Pius IX, long before Vatican II, said those who through no fault of their own do not know the Catholic faith can still be saved. Okay, so there's, there's still a possibility. Um, but let's realize, I mean, God gave Francis Xavier the gift of raising the dead. So let's not just relegate everybody to that, like, oh, they'll probably be saved by following their kind. I'm not saying all non-Catholics go to hell, but hey, I mean, Francis Xavier was given the gift of raising the dead, and a lot of modern theologians were not. So that's sort of God saying there's some truth to this. He baptized about 500,000 Asians. India, Indonesia... Japan, and his big dream was China, um, and he died on Sanchin Island just within eyeshot of China. And actually, my friend made a movie on Francis Xavier. You can get it on um, Amazon. It's, it's just called Xavier, the Missionary Saint, and he got Liam Neeson to narrate it. This was my roommate in college, hmm. and it's one of the coolest movies I've ever seen on a saint, St. Francis Xavier, and they got to film where... Xavier 
met Ignatius at the University of Paris. They got to film where he started his life off in northeast Spain. They got to film where he took off from Lisbon. They just stayed with, because he's a Jesuit, he got to stay with the Jesuits in all these places and made an excellent movie for very budget cost. Stayed with the Jesuits in India, interviewed the Jesuits in India where Francis Xavier was, um, made it to Japan, and then they really wanted to go film in China. And you know what happened? The Chinese authorities at the last minute told him, no, you can't enter. So their last place of filming was Sanchin Island, right where he died. So in the steps of Francis Xavier, my friend who's a Jesuit also failed to get to China, just like him. So that's sort of a blessing on, you know, we all have our dreams in life, but God has the better plan, you know. Yes, Dana? Now, in the previous class and this class, you, well, discussing things, have mentioned movies that may help us out. Could you be willing to make a list of movies yeah, you know, you're the second person to ask for movies. What I think I'll do, I might write just a blog post on maybe five fiction movie, five fiction books, five nonfiction, and five movies to see. I think I'll do that. I'll write, I'll write a blog post on. Yeah, um, yeah. I got another request for that, and uh, I don't want to overwhelm people. How would that sound? Five fiction, five nonfiction, five movies. Would that be okay? Yeah, one day. I mean, if you just let us know what we think would be good, I'd yeah. like to hear everything. That Great, I'll do that. I'll write that down right now. It's good. It's a good idea. Okay, what's the part after the gospel then in any mass? Yes, Ben. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. So it'd be the sermon, but that's not um, necessary. It's usually encouraged. I mean, I think you have to have one for first-class feasts, and it sh- you should have one for second-class feasts. Um, amazingly, it was actually there was actually less emphasis before Vatican II on the sermon than the post-Vatican II homily for daily masses. I'm not exactly sure why, but just how things sort of panned out. Um, maybe there's spiritual import behind it. but And then, uh, so there may be a sermon, there may be a creed, and then after the creed, I kiss the altar, and I turn around and I say, Dominus Vobiscum. What's the response? Uh, Dr. Ted Sri, he goes to the New Mass, but he's got a really excellent biblical look at what, we'll just finish on this because it's good stuff. If you look in the Old Testament, every time that an angel says to a human being, the Lord is with you or the Lord be with you, it's not an emotionally comforting thing. Well, it is, but let me put it this way. When an angel says to a human in the Old Testament, the Lord be with you or the Lord is with you, it actually means... Take great courage because you have a huge task in front of you. (laughs) Take great courage because you have a big task in front of you. What you're called to is heroic generosity because we're supposed to slaughter ourselves on the altar at Mass, our own wills. And so when I say Dominus Vobiscum, don't slaughter yourself. It means slaughter your will. Kill your own will for what you want to do in life and start doing what God wants. So when I say Dominus Vobiscum, think of like Joshua was told that, and I think Gideon was told that. When the angel appears to these warriors and says, the Lord is with you, it's to say, you're going to win because he's with you, but it's going to take everything you got. Think of what, what is the most intense task ever given with these words in the Bible? Anybody know? The Blessed Mother. The Blessed Mother, very good. Yeah, yeah. What does Gabriel say? The Lord is with you. Right. So this is... This is an encouraging, it's encouraging, but it's, hey, you've got to man up, or in this case, woman up, to, uh, <laughs> to what you have to do here. It's hard stuff. So it's also a blessing. So you're not saying it 
to Christ, you're saying it to me, that's why it's one of the only times I face you, because I, and by the way, in the traditional at Mass, um, it's really, really wired for the interior life. Remember how we talked about the purgative, illuminative, and unitive way? I'm supposed to be focusing on Christ and the Blessed Sacrament and the Holy Spirit in me, which is why it's actually written into the rubrics of the Mass, I'm to look down when I say Dominus Fobiscum. So if you notice me not making eye contact when I turn around and say Dominus Fobiscum, it's because it's written into the rules. I'm not allowed to look at you, right? Because, I mean, it shows you, that shows show you so much what's different about the old Mass and the new Mass. So when I go like this, Dominus Fobiscum, I'm required to look down so as to not make eye contact with you because people are distracting, you know? There's beautiful people, there's ugly people, there's funny things happening, and all those things are distracting, you know? The only exception when we're to make eye contact or when we can is the sermon, is the sermon, because that's actually a pause in the Mass. That's why the maniple comes off. The maniple comes off because it's actually not technically part of the Mass, so that's, even then, I'm not looking at you during the Mass. Um, okay, we'll finish with this. So then Dominus Fobiscum, and then the offertory, and then I take the, uh, the chalice veil off, and we'll just finish with the, all the different parts of it. Does anybody know what's above the chalice veil before this, or not before this? It's actually off to the side. But when I walk in, what's the one item above the chalice veil? Ben? The burst. The burst. And what's in the burst? Anybody know what's in the burst? Yes? Corporal. Corporal. Very good, the corporal. Anybody know what's different about the corporal in the new mass versus the old mass? Blessed sacrament in in the old mass. The blessed sacrament in the old mass is laid upon the corporal. That's why it's called corporal, the body. Corporal means body. It's on it. In the new Mass, where do you say the whole Roman canon or Eucharistic prayer 2, 3, or 4? Where is the sacred host as you pray? Yes. It's on the patent, exactly. It's on the patent. But the patent in the old Mass represents the Jews. So once again, it's hidden halfway under there because the Jews, well, look at it this way. It's really neat. Okay, I just said I'd finish with this, but I've got one more thing to teach. (laughs) When I hold the patent up like this, these four things are the horns of the altar in the Old Testament. The patent on top of it is the Jewish people, because the Jewish people produce Christ. I make a sign of the cross over the corporal. This is just bread. It's not the body of Christ yet. And then I plop it down on quadrant, or I guess you'd say nonant, if there's nine sections to the corporal. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It goes on to number eight. Plop it on the eighth of the nonant, so we could call it, of the corporal. And then I put the patent halfway under the corporal, and it's covered halfway, like a, and so all you see is a half moon. Then I walk to the right side, put in the wine, the water, and I come back, and I will cover over the patent with the purificator. That does a few things. One is, because my intention is always to turn any bread and wine on top of the corporal into the body of Christ, if there's any wine on the corporal, it's exactly outside of the corporal at this point. So I'm not intending that. Everything is just, everything about this Mass is surgically precise. It's off to the right. The other thing is now the Jews are fully, they're, they're fully blinded to the fact they're crucifying Christ. Now, this isn't an, some traditionals are anti-Semitic. This is not an anti-Semitic talk because John Vianney saw this and he said in the 19th century, no, Christians crucify him more by their sins than the Jews. So this is, right? But in the first century, it was, it was the Jews who were blinded to this. Ah, but what happens at the end of time? This is unveiled. The, 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 the patent comes out again. And this is again to say that the Jews will be given the fullness of the vision of the Savior at the end of time. Isn't that amazing? So when, what you see in the patent, you should think of the Jewish people as a whole. Okay? 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.